Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. And today we have a great episode in store for you all today. I've been looking forward to dropping this episode or releasing this episode for a little while now. Um, those that are you that are new to the channel, go and hit the subscribe button. And in this episode today, we talk about the operative fixation of distal radius fractures. We talk about some operative pearls. And at the end, we actually go over the extended FCR approach. And we go through this in detail. So that's actually at the end of this episode. If Again, if you're new, go and check out the YouTube channel if you actually want to see the clip for when we talk about the uh, the approach. And the link to that will be in the description of this episode. So again, I included it at the end of this podcast episode. For those of you that are listening, that just want to listen, do a, a mental rep or listen to kind of some of the things we kept it in. But for those of you that want to see the approach, go and check it out on YouTube. And a little bit out on distal radius fractures, we actually have a prior episode that goes over the generic or kind of the basics of distal radius fracture. That's going to be episode number seven with Dr. Brooks Ficke, and I'll put the link to that in the description if you want to get more of a baseline understanding of distal radius fractures or you are new to this podcast. So again, that is going to be episode number seven, Intro to Distal Radius Fractures with Dr. Ficke. But today, again, we are going to dive a lot deeper into the, actually the operative treatment of distal radius fractures. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the history of distal radius fractures. We kind of talk about the evolution of plating of distal radius fractures. Then we talk about some operative pearls for uh, operative fixation of these distal radius fractures and what you're really trying to achieve or accomplish with this uh with this the, you know our techniques on treating distal radius fractures and we have a, an excellent uh guest in store today we have dr jorge orbe who actually is going to come and talk to us about distal radius fractures uh, a little bit about dr orbe he is a, obviously a board certified orthopedic surgeon he specializes in hand and upper extremities he did his training and residency at the Hospital for Joint Diseases Orthopedic Institute of New York, and he did his fellowship in hand and microsurgery at the University of Miami slash Jackson Memorial Hospital. He is a innovator in the field of orthopedic surgery, one of the innovators of volar plating for distal radius fractures. So who better to talk to us about distal radius fractures than Dr. Orbe? So Without further ado, please enjoy our episode here on Distal Radius Fractures and let us know how much you like it. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Orbe, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to speaking with you and talking a little bit more about distal radiuses. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Wendell. It's really a pleasure and honor to be here with you tonight. I'm looking forward to this. Yes. And what I'd kind of like to do is, um, you know, we have a lot of listeners and a lot of people know know who you are, but, you know, we kind of want to dive a little bit deeper. But just to give people a little bit of a background where are you from? You know, where where'd you do medical school? Kind of just give a little, a little bit of background of what brought you into this, this medical field. Thank you, Wendell. Well, I always love science. I always love uh, technology. I wanted to be a physicist, but my grandmother told me that there was no money in physics, that I should be an engineer or a doctor. So I decided to be a, an engineer, but eventually ended up being a doctor. So I did follow my grandma's advice. I was born in Cuba. In, in 1957, two years before this terrible government came in and my family had to leave, we were um, furniture manufacturers. I come from a long line of woodworkers. You know, my ancestors worked with their hands. Yeah. And it was a problem in these systems when you are successful. They just don't like you, so we had to leave. I ended up living in Puerto Rico where I went to medical school. And then when I finished medical school, I was very lucky to be accepted into a residency program at, in New York at a hospital for joint diseases. The reason for that was that Dr. Victor Frankel, who was the most generous, intelligent, and amazing person, saw something in me. He, he saw that I was an engineer at heart, that I liked mechanics, and that I loved uh, orthopedics. 
And he just hired me on the spot and didn't even go through a match in those days. It was very wow. difficult for a young, young guy like me from Puerto Rico to be accepted in a high power residency in the US, particularly, you know, when nobody really knew me. So I have to, I'm very grateful to, to Dr. Franco and, um, and the many other people that did help me on, on the way over. Yeah. And so what, what brought you, I guess specifically, or what, what can you kind of tell me the story about what drove you into the field of hand and, and upper extremity? You know, you, you did, you did med school in Puerto Rico. You're now in New York, which is probably a culture shock coming from Puerto Rico to New York. It's a little bit different. So what made you, or what, what brought you towards the field of hand? To be honest to you, joint disease is a great residency. Uh, it was particularly good in what I liked, which was joint replacement, uh, reconstruction. It was very, very uh, progressive uh, and ahead uh, on, on its day on, on that field. And I was all about engineering and mechanics and biomaterials. So I loved that. But when I finished my residency, I felt that I, I had a gap. My gap was in hand surgery. I, I, I knew enough spine to be dangerous, but I knew I, would not, I did not want to be a spine doctor. I did not want to be a sports medicine doctor because I can't shoot hoops or, or you know, or catch <laughs> baseballs. I'm just not very good at that. So I wanted to, to at least master hand surgery. And I did a fellowship thinking that it was not necessarily going to be what I would do for the rest of my life. And it wasn't because I am really a hand surgeon that does big bones. So uh, my hand surgery goes from the rectal plexus to the tip of the finger, but I do a bunch of shoulders and humors. I just love, love the big part of the upper extremity. And so it, it was, I, I was fortunate to be able to do that fellowship with Dr. Burkhalter in the University of Miami, which was amazing. Dr. Burkhalter was, again, very influential in, in my career. He was a true philosopher, a, a really uh, a Renaissance man. He was very influential in me too. Yeah, and I know since then, you know, you've done a lot of things. Um, you've, you've been an innovator in in the field. You've made a you know great name for yourself. You know, internationally known. And so, I guess my question is, what brought you towards this field of, I guess you could say, entrepreneurship in a way? I know we spoke a little bit earlier. We used a couple of different words, but so what? What brought you towards that? Towards this field, and and now not only doing the clinical side of things, but now also doing a little bit of the business side. Yeah, I, I, my family was business family, but I always, I was a second child, you know, my same gender as my older brother. I was a rebel. I did not want to be a business person. It, it, it just happened, it had to be, because in order to innovate and to develop new ideas, I had to have a structure that would allow me to do that. And I had to build a company because that was the only way. I mean, the big companies were not willing to listen to my ideas. They thought I was too, too outside the uh, horizon for them. So I just did it myself. Well, myself and, and uh, I, I crossed paths with great friends, engineers, and people that had more of a business background. And we all banded together and created Hand Innovation, which was our first company. It was acquired by Johnson & Johnson in 2006. But um, it, 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 it's all about, it was all about teamwork. Uh, it, it was all about the need to have a structure to be able to create. Uh, and fortunately, you know, it, it all proved well in the end. Yeah, that's one of the things that I've, um, that I've noticed that, especially in organizations and when you're trying to reach a goal, that it's, it's more about getting a good team or working with a good team of people um, that, that are, have their own, that they have their expertise in the different areas. You know, you don't need to know necessarily how to run everything yourself, but as long as you can surround yourself with people who know what they're doing, you know, kind of, and, and work together, it makes, um, it makes things a lot of it, a lot better, a little bit easier functioning, you know, more. Functioning. Absolutely. The, the regulatory, uh, issues, the accounting, the legal issue, you can always find smart people to help you with it. Yeah, what, what, what the leader has to have is vision, uh, have a vision for the future and an idea that can be made into a reality. Right. Yeah. And, and I have one more question before we kind of get into our talk of the day, which is about distal radiuses. But this question we've been asking on the podcast lately, and we've gotten some interesting answers. And the question I have for you is, 
Uh, what book or, you know, what are one of the books that you've gifted to others that you, you know, you, you told your people to read or, or you, you've hand, handed them or whatever it may be? Well, there's several books that I, I have fallen in love with through the years. Yes. But one of my all-time favorites is Charlie's Low Friction Arthroplasty. Ah, okay. So Charlie was an engineer at heart, and he invented that total hip early 60s. And he was very concerned that the operation was difficult and very exacting. So he wrote this book that had like 200 steps and each page was a chapter and a step. You had to, you had to read one page at a time and accomplish yeah. that step before you move on. And he said, I do it this way so people can do my operation. And when I, in, I never forgot that. And when I got to the stage in life, that it was, it was my turn to innovate a surgical technique. I did just like Charlie. I broke it in steps. So I could tell people, do this step, do that step. And the extended FCR approach is that. It's just a recipe to get you there. Awesome. Well, you know, kind of going back to some of the things that you were talking about, you've been around and, you know, you've, you've made um, headway and, you know, new innovations in this field about distal radius and especially volar plating. Can you kind of take us through some of the history? Like, how did this come about? And, you know, a little bit more about the history of, uh, of volar plating for these distal radius fractures. Let's do that. For that, I have this PowerPoint. All right. So, yes, it's the most common fracture of the human skeleton. And 90% of them are dorsally displaced. And about half of them are articular. We know that we can treat many of these conservatively, particularly in the elderly person, because they have a high tolerance for deformity and they do fairly well. But young people do not. They're, they have much higher demands, like this 35-year-old lady who fell rollerblading. We can't accept this deformity. So this is the most commonly performed procedure today in the world for this condition. Why is that? It's because the patients do very well and we, we experience this in our clinics constantly. So now three months after that distal radius fracture, this lady can perform a push-off test in her examining table. And of course, I discharge her today. <clears throat> but young people benefit, but old people also benefit. The really bad distal radius fractures in which yeah. the fingers are swollen and they have very poor function. If you fix them correctly, they can be, get back to their lives and take care of themselves immediately. I think it's very important. So by 2002, Diego Fernandez, a good friend of mine and myself, published the first uh, article on, on voter fixation of dorsally displaced disorderly fractures with a fixed ankle or plate. And at that time, this was, this was a, really against the norm. I would never have been able to publish this if it wasn't for that I banded up with a well-known uh, professor from Europe. So that, that, was, that was part of the, part of the success has to do with your friends and, and how you um, establish relationships with people that are willing to help you. And, and uh, we all succeed together. But the distal fracture story is very ancient. 5,000 years ago in, in Egypt, they were already talking about how to treat the distal radius injuries. And in the 1950s, which is 70 years ago, um, we already were treating diaphyseal fractures with compression uh, plates and very successfully. The best indication for me of a, of a compression plate is the forearm because the forearm is an articular fracture. The forearm is, is, is one joint, right? the forearm joint with two condyles, the proximal and distal radial joint. Every time we break the radius on the ulna, we disconnect these joints. So plate fixation allowed us to pro provide anatomical reduction and early function for these intraarticular fractures. Changed the world at that time. But it didn't work for distal radius because the, the distal part of the, of the uh, radius did not accept uh, screw fixation. The, the bone was soft and comminuted and it just didn't work out. So I was a fellow and I used to operate all night long by myself. And I loved internal fixation. So I wanted to treat this oreos fracture with internal fixation. The logical thing was, let's apply dorsal plates. This is one of my dorsal plates. 
terrible idea. They collapse all the time. 1990 was that. So one morning after operating on night, I rounded with Dr. Burkhalter. So I would walk from bed to bed in the uh, hand uh, surgery ward and explain to him what I did the night before. And he walked into this room and there's this patient with a dressing and he said, George, don't tell me that you did that silly play for session again. <laughs> <laughs> now, now these, the dorsal, because that, that's when a lot of these are being used first. The, the, for these dorsally displaced, the, the thought process was to put the plate dorsally, but then there were a lot of, you know, complications uh, from that placement, correct, of, of, of the plate? Correct. Right. Not only could, could, we, could we not fix it because there were no fixed angle screws in 1990, but right. they were they were irritate the extensor tendon big time. So that was a really bad idea. And because of the dogma, it, it, people couldn't do think different. And we all are victims of this. We we have been taught one thing, and it might have some sense, but there might be a solution that is better right in front of our noses, and we don't see it. But in 1995. Jesse Jupiter and Hill Hastings came up with a pie plate. And the pie plate followed the dogma, dorsal fractures, actually with a dorsal plate, but they introduced fixed angle screws for a, a distal rigus plate for the first time. And that was amazing. For the first time we could fix these community fractures and maintain reduction. It was great. The problem was we started rupturing tendons right and left immediately because the, the plate wasn't really very well designed. It had to be cut to size. You had to leave a sharp border where you cut the, the, the plate and that would yeah. rupture the tendons. And I looked at this and I realized, oh, there's no space on the top side for a metallic hardware. But on the bottom side, there's a lot of uh, uh, space to apply internal fixation hardware. The volar radial surface is not in contact with the flexor tendons. So in the very same pie plate set, there was this little T-plate that, that had fixed angle capabilities that was designed for volar fractures. And it was commercially available, but nobody had seen it. So these are the pegs. These screwed into the plate and became fixed angle. So one day it dawned upon us, why don't we just put the plate on the wrong side? And this is one of these cases in 1997, very early using the roller T-plate, and it worked beautiful. The patients, I knew the first time I did this operation, this was the solution because I never had a dislocated fracture that did so well the first week post. The problem wasn't really designed for this, so we had to protect it and it would break. It was a very difficult thing to do. So I had a team of young, enthusiastic people, and we designed in 1998 the first Volar plate designed for dorsal fractures. We called it the H plate. It was a terrible idea. So (laughs) (laughs) it was one size fits all, but fit none. And if you had a right-sided fracture, you used four holes on the plate. And if it was a left, you would use the other four. So at least you would try to follow the the subchondral bone. Didn't work very well. Next couple of years later, we already had a new plate. This one was right, so there was only one size. And it was made by a small company. It was FDA approved, but nobody else used it except myself. But that was good enough because I learned from it. <clears throat> but it was called the biodynamics technology plate. What, was, what was one of the things that you learned from that plate? I, I learned that the fractures were that were dorsally unstable very often. If you stabilize them dorsally by applying those pegs, underneath the dorsal subchondral bone, mm-hmm. it would become palmarly unstable. So you needed to have a volar buttress to try to support it. And this problem haunted us for years until we came up with a hook plate, with a volar hook plate, because the very small fragments, no matter what we did, were unstable. Right. And by 2001, our group had a company, it was called the, the uh, Hand Innovations, and we came up with this, this is the first DVR that was commercially available. It was a success. And we taught the method, we taught volar fixation dorsal fractures. And in, by next year, we had published that first article. 
we haven't stopped innovating roller plates since then. And to this day, the, the plate continues to evolve. A few things have not changed. One is fixed angle. Fixed angle means the screws thread into the plate and reproduce that uh, distribution of the elements in space that you desire. Because if you use polyaxial screws, it's very difficult to get it perfect. But the fixed angles allow you to create that scaffold underneath the subcondral bone. We're not getting interfragmentary fixation, we're just creating a raft or a surface underneath the subcondral bone to hold the fragments in space. Honestly, it's still a difficult operation. You know, using a volar approach to treat a dorsally displaced fracture is, is, is not easy. It's counterintuitive. Right. And, and I just wanted to, to, to quick, sorry to interrupt, just, just I wanted to touch on what you were, one of the things you were just saying is that the, one of the goals of this plate is not interfragmentary, inter, interfragmentary compression, but you're really, it's giving support, you know, the subchondral support for um, kind of rafting was sometimes people talk about that with tibial plateau fractures, but you're just giving that subchondral support. And you're not trying to compress those fragments with with this design and, and how you treat these i think that's just an important part um for people to understand that are listening to this but if i said anything wrong please, please correct me but um i just want to just point that out absolutely this is what it's what, what it's all about <clears throat> we can still have problems if the screws are too long we injure uh, extensors if the plate is not flat on the bone surface you can injure flexors big problems that have occurred ever since the volar plating was introduced and i feel responsible a little bit every time i see one of these cases because this is all due to the fact that we're fixing them from the volar side and and that has is not easy right so anatomical plates in order to produce that perfect support require an anatomical reduction and it's difficult to do because the fractures that are displaced dorsally many times the dorsal periosteum is not ruptured, it's just foreshortened. And there's a hematoma that has, has formed underneath the periosteum. And if you get to it three, four, five days later, it's already organized. No matter how hard you pull, it's, it's, it's a solid, it's a gel, it doesn't flow. So you can't get the length or the roller tilt. And many surgeons that don't understand the need of a better exposure, just slap the plate on. The plate is not flat on the bone surface and get into trouble. So we need to eliminate that hematoma to be able to reduce the fracture. And, and that applies to any fracture in the human body. You know, anatomical reduction requires hematoma debridement. And in the distal radius, if you have an articular fracture, even more, because you cannot get articular con congruity unless you remove the hematoma in the interstices of the fracture planes. So to me, the, the most important thing that our group has ever done is the extended OCR approach. Because no matter what plate you use, whether it's the best plate or the worst plate, you can still get a good result if you are able to get an anatomical reduction. The only way to get it in many cases is with the extended OCR approach. Now, that's one thing I was going to ask. So what are, what are the... Um, I guess a, a benefit to doing the extended SCR versus doing like, you know, a Volar Henry, because, you know, you're reading the books and they'll, you know, say you use your Volar Henry approach for your distal radius fractures. But now, yeah, I mean, I know you published and talked about this a long time ago, but so what are the, well, I guess what's the advantage of using the extended SCR approach versus using a Volar Henry for these distal radius fractures? It's night and day. And let, let me continue because it, it all follows immediately. So the extended FCR approach requires to go more distal. You have to cross the creases. It's not a Henry. It's a marriage between your Henry and your scaphoid approach. Okay. You pronate the proximal fragment to get to the dorsal aspect of the fracture so you can debris the hematoma or release a contracted dorsal periosteum or work in the articular uh, displaced fra uh, fragments. Now, does pronating that fragment do anything with the blood flow? It, it does not because we have to think of the proximal fragments of bone flat. The blood supply to the proximal fragment comes from the anterior interosseous artery. Tom Wright from Gainesville demonstrated this 15 years ago. If you don't dissect the ulnar aspect of the uh, radius, 
you're just pronating and supinating the proximal fragment along its axis of rotation, and you're not stripping the blood supply. So it's, it's alive and vascular, even if you have done this maneuver that some people are afraid of doing. Okay. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Yeah. Let's, let's continue on with this. Uh, for those that are listening, we're going through the extended FCR approach. So, but um, yes, continue on. This is you're saying that this is um, this is kind of a marriage between uh, the Henry and kind of scaphoid, and this is a little bit extended. And you cross the across uh, the creases. Uh, can you continue to kind of walk us through some of this approach here? Yeah. So cross the creases and go distal all the way to the trapezial tuberosity. And if you do that, an eight or 10 centimeter incision, the fracture will be right in the center of your exposure. So you're not operating in a tunnel, like with the Henry approach. And if you release that uh, part of the FCR sheath that corresponds to the scaphoid approach, that distal inch, what you accomplish with that is to allow your median nerve and your flexor tends to move all the way ulnar. So yeah. now you, you have this beautiful exposure of your goral radius that you couldn't get. Right, yeah, because I know I've been in cases where I've done a volar Henry and we haven't released the FCR distally and you try to retract it and it's kind of hard to, to retract everything out of the way to see the, the volar surface of the distal radius like you you know, like you would in, if you use an extended FCR approach. So I, I have had that problem uh, that you're talking about. I've encountered that before. <laughs> when the, to the point that people used to say that volar plates cause carpal tunnel because they would have a neuropathy after surgery. And the problem is that they were retracting so hard that they weren't using a neuropathy in the median nerve. Mm. But if you do the extended approach, you, ne you never see that. So all the way to the trapezial tunnel, and that allows you to get all the way over. I go to meetings and people say, oh, if you have a volar marginal fragment, you have to make a separate incision between the ulnar neurovascular bundle and the flexor tendon. So otherwise you can't get to the ulnar aspect. Well, look at that picture. All I have done here is release the FCR sheath an inch more distal than Henry. And by doing that, the volar rim of the lunate fossa is right in front of me. The volar marginal fragment, that's a volar marginal fragment very nicely. And it's right there in front of me. All for one, one, you don't need several incisions. You need one incision that allows you to do everything you need. And then right. comes and if you, if you mm -hmm. had like, for example, through this incision, also, if you had an acute carpal tunnel, you can still do a carpal tunnel release and everything through the same incision. Correct. If, if you extend the FCR release all the way distal, you will have released the carpal tunnel from the radial side. Now, I don't do that because the, the depth and the darkness down there scares me. <laughs> so right. I, I just do anything. If I have to do a carpal tunnel release, I will then do a mini open uh, okay. because it's, it's the easiest and fastest way to do it. But, okay. but there are several surgeons and there are articles written that if you go all the way distal, releasing the superficial and the deep leaf of insertions of the transverse carpal ligament. If the transverse carpal ligament comes around, divides, and surrounds the FCR, and forms a separate small compartment for the FCR. So the idea here is to release the superficial part, take the tendon out of the tunnel. There are fibers that attach the tendon to the trapezium, so release those fibers too. And then incise the floor of the sheath. The floor of the sheath separates the FCR from flexor policy longest. If you go all the way distal, you will have released the whole carpal tunnel. Okay. A little scared. <laughs> scared to go that far. <laughs> I don't like it, but you can do it. <laughs> we call the radial septum, the intermuscular membrane, the, all these fibrous tissues on the radial side, and they must be addressed too. And this is, this is how we think it's best to do it. So once you have released that distal inch of the FCR sheet and mobilized the tendons all the way on, you have everything in front of you. Then palpate for the volar rim of the lunate fossa. The volar rim of the lunate fossa is, is the highest uh, peak in the volar radius. And it's very, you don't see it because it's covered by that thick periosteum, but you feel it with your finger. And once you know where it is, if you draw a line that is transverse, to the radius, which is, is, is that one over there. 
and you draw a line transverse to the radius, then everything that is proximal has to be elevated and everything that is distal, leave it behind because those are the volar um, uh, wrist ligaments. <laughs> and then release your break, the, the intermuscular symptom from proximal to distal by incising with the scalpel horizontally at the brachioradialis, right at the edge of the brachioradialis. And if you do that distal enough, you'll see the radial artery. You stop when you see the radial artery. You have to be careful. It took me some time to figure out where the radial artery was. But now I, yeah. I do it instinctively. I'm always scared about that, you know, um, dissecting those tissues out and running into the artery. I'm always scared. <laughs> go, go slow. You can use the scalpel or the scissor. Once you see it, you say, okay, that's as far as I want to go. I don't want to go any further than that. <laughs> and then expose your first compartment and then open it up. And then in the floor of the first compartment, you'll find the insertion of the brachioradialis into the distal fragment. So separate the brachioradialis from the proximal fragment, leave it hanging from the distal fragment and cut it. And then lift everything palmarly and expose the whole volar radius. So you get this beautiful volar exposure. But this is not all, because now comes the fun part. Let's go dorsal. So distract the fracture by pulling on the fingers, and then gently pronate the radius out of the way. And now you're in the dorsal aspect of the fracture. The reason to do that is simply to remove the hematoma in the majority of cases. It makes things so much easier. But sometimes, if you have a very bad articular fracture, you put all the little pieces back together, and then you put some morselized bone graft to hold them in place and supinate the radial back, and you're done. You don't have to do more incision. Now, now, one question I do have for you is, do you ever, you know, when you go and you're, and you're removing the dorsal hematoma, is it ever a case where it's very short that you have to release the dorsal periosteum as well, or do you leave that in place? I don't do it every time, but if the fracture is more than two or three weeks old, the periosteum will already start healing in, in a foreshortened position. So you won't be able to get the length unless you release the dorsal periosteum. And wow. I have a referral practice. So many of my cases are already four, six weeks old. They were treating a cast, they collapsed. And I do it not uncommonly. I, I have it down. It's, it's, it's not difficult, but the first time you're scared because the, the, the dorsal um, callus is thick. It's a lot of healing tissue up there and you have to excise it and you have to protect the flexor tendons. But once you understand the anatomy, it becomes very easy. It's, it's not difficult at all. I cannot okay. show everything <laughs> tonight, <laughs> but that's the well, advanced chapter. Okay, perfect. Well, here, I have a video here that we'll, we'll um, play that we are going to go through some of the approach uh, and, and kind of break this down for everybody that is uh, that is watching here, and we'll try to break it down and make it very clear. And let me uh, let's get let this going. Share. I'll, I'll sure. Mm -hmm. Let's see. All right, let's go. If you want to walk us through this, we can go. Uh, I'll, I'll click play, and we'll um, we'll go through and see what we have. All right. So marking the trapezial, the the two person the trapezium, marking the FCR, my my zigzag. Cross the creases. My superficial radial artery, if it's big, I, I preserve it. I don't have to sacrifice it. And you release. always use you just you always use scissors to release the FCR sheath. Um, yeah. or do you use a knife or does it does it matter? I, I use a knife off of I usually start with a knife and continue with a scissor. Okay. And then you, we noted our superficial radial artery distally. And Looking at here, you know, at least first starting off, you know, you try to figure out what is the actual floor of the sheath versus what's some other type of tissue. Any is it just kind of this bluish tissue here? <laughs> Good, point. Floor? Good point. This is an area where we have to be careful. If there's a lot of displacement, many times the median nerve is underneath the floor of the sheath. You just cut the floor of the your median nerve is right there. And other times, there are anatomical variations in the, uh, uh, in the palmocutaneous branch. 
the, not uncommonly, the palmer cutaneous branch runs in the uh, floor of the FCR sheath. So it, it could be right there where you are. So we have to keep an eye on it and see what each patient individually is. They're all a little different. But the, the safest way to go to the deeper compartment is this way, through the FCR sheath. Release superficial, retract the tendon, release deep, mobilize the tendon ulnarly, and then you are there, down there. Perfect. Let's continue on here. So this is all sheath that we're going through. Floor of the sheath. Now I'm releasing the fibers that attach to the FCR to the trapezium. Those fibers are those, are those are, here, I'll try to see if I can use my pen here. Are mm -hmm. those some of these fibers right here? They, they were cut there, but if you go a little distal, there might be some fibers left distal. That's correct. Ah, okay. That's correct. And they, everybody has them. Every patient has them. And they're, they're, there's no consequence in releasing them, provided you put the FCR tendon back where it belongs on the way out. What's interesting about these fibers, that it lets us know that the FCR doesn't have excursion at the trapezial tunnel. It's a static structure. All the excursion is proximal to the trapezial tunnel as the FCR is a wrist flexor. That's, that, that's all it does. So the, the biomechanical insertion of the FCR is not the second metacarpal. It's the trapezium. Mm. The anatomical okay. insertion that we know is the second metacarpal. Okay. Huh. All right. Well, that's good to know. And, and so what is this little tissue that's right superficial to where your, where your um, uh, blade is? Well, not blade, but these scissors. This that that tissue here. So now... What I'm doing with, the, with, with those scissors, I'm, I'm opening the space underneath the volar leaf of uh, or, or the, the floor of the FCR sheath or the volar leaf of insertion of the transverse carpal ligament because we are already at the area where it becomes transverse carpal ligament. And that septum separates the FCR from the FPL. So you get your bearings, you, you get oriented uh, by identifying your FPL. Now, the FPL is a, a level below the median nerve. So if you see FPL, you know you're safe. Median nerve, motor branch is, is superficial to you and distal to you. Right. Okay. And then this is kind of that tissue we were talking about a little bit earlier. If you wanted to do a carpal tunnel release, this is kind of that floor tissue that you were talking about that you would be going through. You are saying, you know, you have a more superficial and uh, just, just uh, underneath FCRs, kind of this this more, you know, ligamentous tissue that you could, uh, that you could cut if you were going to do that, but you know, you don't necessarily do that all the time. Yep. All right, cool. Let's continue on here. Let's see. So keep so, on, now you see how, how fake they get. There's my FPL. I'm just checking yep. to confirm that that's FPL. Yep. And I know that if I release that septum between FPL and FCR, I'm safe. Now this is the space of Parana. I'm opening the space underneath the flexor tendons. Those are the last distal fibers of insertion of origin of the FPL. I'm going to put a long plane on this guy, so I'm going to release just a few. Uh, okay, you always release that sharply just using a knife. Right. Okay, great. I, I might not do this depending on the patient's anatomy and the bone quality. If the bone quality is good, I use a short plate, and I don't need to, to elevate the F, FPL origin at all. But okay. in most older patients, super patients, I will do it because I'll use a longer plate to get better diaphyseal fixation. Wow, okay. Let's continue on. And now I'm opening up the carpal tunnel and communicating the space of Parona with the um, carpal tunnel. So there's a reflection of the bursa that I released. So, no, so you're saying that was a reflection of the bursa between the, the space of Perona, which is that kind of that space that's superficial to the uh, pronator quadritis. And so you're just really just, just kind of just opening up and, and just releasing that. Communicating the carpal tunnel with the space of parents is just one space. Wow. And that, that just facilitates exposure very, very much. Okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. And then now we're looking at um, going to our brachioradialysis is what this is looking like. Yes. Let's see. Let's Horizontal cut from proximal to distal until I find my radial artery. And there's my first compartment. 
And now and so, mm-hmm. no, just to just to reorient everybody. So what we're looking at here, pronated quadratus is right here with the, with this X's. This is a torn, not torn, the cut fibers of the brachioradialis. And then this um, is kind of some of our sheath of our first dorsal compartment. And this is this kind of bright yellowish structure here. This is going to be one of the actual tendons. Yes. Okay, perfect. Okay. And then this is just releasing those tendons, releasing the sheath. I'm Dr. Polos' uh, longus extensor brevis. You can see both. Mobilize them out of the way. And now I'm separating the brachiodialis from the proximal fragment. Leave it, leave it hanging from the distal fragment. Now I'm doing my step cut. Mm. And this is when I when we release, remove the prime deforming force of the distal structure. Many times that, that brachiodialis makes reduction very difficult. Do you I do that? Really, do you cut? I was just gonna ask, do you cut the brachioradialis every time? No. Occasionally, in young people, in fresh fractures, I don't need to. It's, it's, it's not necessary, but the majority of the times, I do. In fact, two days ago, I was with this most wonderful resident, and we opened the exposed volar radius, and this was an, an elderly patient with a very deformed fracture. And I told him, let's try not to release the breaker of the eyes. And everybody, of course, loves to try his aid. And I did everything except releasing the brachiodialis. I was able to pronate the proximal fragment. As long as you release the attachment of the brachiodialis to the proximal fragment, you can still pronate the proximal fragment. The problem was at the time of getting the reduction, the pull on the brachiodialis made the reduction very difficult. So I had to cut it anyway. And then every then it was very easy. <laughs> Excellent. Let's continue on. That's the watershed line that you feel by palpating, palpation. And notice that it's distal to the muscle. So as you elevate elevate all those tissues, uh, that thick periosteum that is distal to the the muscle, you need a scalpel because the the key elevator is not gonna bring you up. So now you release from from distal to proximal until all the periosteum is up and then you grab your, then your assistant. your periosteum. Your assistant. Pulls a prayer cellular and steals the case away from me. <laughs> of course. Now pronating the proximal fragment of the way. Gently, not devascularizing. And there's the hematoma. And that's our hematoma. And, and irrigation, suction, and curation. And in this case, notice that, that how thick the periosteum is. This is about three weeks old, this fracture. Collapsed three weeks old. And now... Um, it all comes together very easy. And I call this the reduction maneuver. When I hold the reduction with one hand used as a pincer, thumb on the proximal fragment, fingers on the dorsal skin, pushing the, the dorsal displacement down. And what the surgeon with one hand controls the fracture now, and with the other hand places the plate. Right. And so just to recap, because we went through the the exposure to just to uh, recap, you can let me know if I got any steps wrong. I'm trying to recall it here. Uh, we have our incision basically centered over the FCR. We do a, 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 a curve at the end or, you know, so we don't go over the crease. Um, we'll go down, you release your FCR sheath, uh, super, the superficial sheath. Uh, you retract it ulnarly. You release the uh, the floor of the FCR, you make sure you go as, as distal as you can. Um, th- that allows you to uh, move everything out of the way a little bit easier. And then you will kind of recreate that space of Perona, which you're, which you're mentioning a little bit earlier, which is um, that space right, right above. I'm sorry, you identify your FPL, you release the tissue between the um, FPL and, and, your, um, and your FCR. And then you get down to our space of Perona, which you're just kind of recreating that space between there and the carpal tunnel, which just allows our visualization, visualization a little bit easier. Um, then you will, depending on what you need, like depending on if you need to cut the brachioradial, so you can, um, you can do that. Or if you don't need to do that, you can go ahead and find your watershed line make your cut in your pronator quadratus, lift that, you know, very distally is very thick. So you have to use a knife 
And then once you have that part elevated, you can use a periosteal elevator or, or something of that sort to uh, lift everything else up. And then depending on what the fracture needs, you can incise that radial septum, but you don't want to go too distal because you may get close to the, the radial artery. And you could find your brachioradialis, make a stepwise cut in that if you need to. And then you can also continue to dissect dorsally and you'll get into your first dorsal compartment and um, you can kind of just, um, or at least that if you need to. And then you can also um, pronate the proximal fragment and clean out the dorsal, the dorsal hematoma. And then that is pretty much the exposure. And then now we're on our, our steps for our reduction. Excellent, yes. Okay, perfect. Just wanted to recap that. And especially for those listening sometimes, <laughs> you know, the repetition is key. So, uh, and then, so you can take us through kind of our reduction maneuvers and technique and we can kind of go from there. I'll let this. So while holding the reduction with one hand and placing the plate, and still I have my thumb now over the plate, over the proximal fragment, and fingers over the distal fragment, pushing the distal fragment against the plate. So this is a very stable situation, and I'm able to get the reduction. And now I judge where the plate fits, proximal, distal, medial, lateral, and I take my first shot at it. So I try to drill the hole in the center of that long uh, oblong hole and fix it with a screw that is at least two millimeters longer than what I measured, so it doesn't strip on the second cortex. Now, do you do you need to um, do you need to check it radiograph? Like you know, you look at it and you do you do you eyeball it to see if you're in the center of the shaft itself with the plate, or do you need to check it under X-ray to to make sure that the the um, the plate is in the shaft? Maybe the, the, the plate is in the center of the shaft. It's 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 not that difficult because the, the plate has this convex concavity underneath, and it fits the radius just right. So. Adding that anatomical concavity to the bottom of the plate makes now aligning the plate to the shaft much easier than before. Before, with the DVR, the plate was flat. So many times the plate was cockeyed. And it, it, I mean, it worked, but it wasn't as ideal. I had a partner who was an expert at doing that. He was the number one cockeyer in the world. And he still, <laughs> he said, no, they were fine no matter what. Okay. Yeah. But now with the concavity, concavity really aligns very nicely. Wow. Okay. And then the first, uh, the first wires you put in, or, or which wires you put in first? The most ulnar and the most radial uh, of all the wires. I, I put the most ulnar first because that's the you get the most bang for your buck for that most ulnar one. It, it holds the the volar uh, tilt the best, and you then try to recover radial uh, tilt and put the uh, most uh, radial, the one that goes on the tip of the scaphe uh, uh, of the styloid second. Oh, wow, perfect. And take an x-ray and see what happens. So I love the ulnar placement. It's right the dorsal ulnar corner, mm -hmm. two millimeters below subchondral bone, the way that, that it should be. But notice the, the plate is slightly too wide for this patient. But if I use wow. the narrower plate, it's probably going to be a little too narrow and it has less fixation points. So it would be the ideal fixation would be if I could make this plate work for this patient. And I can by using a, a, a polyaxial screw on the styro. This, this wow. is my solution to this problem. Okay. And, and, and just to point out, we want this, this kind of um, ulnar corner screw to end up right there. And then we want our, uh, our screws to be right underneath the subchondral bone, you know, so holding that up. So you don't want it to be too distal or you don't want your plates to be too proximal because you won't get that support of those, um, of that area of the wrist. Correct. So bending the K wires, the, the fi fixed angle temporary K wires to hold the wheat lantern and get them out of the way. Yeah, it's, it's a useful trick. I, I do it every single time. And now we are just drilling and filling. Now for the distal row, when does, do you need to use, do you always use pegs and then do you always use locking screws for the distal row or do you sometimes use cortical screws? I, I use, mostly I use smooth pegs. Uh, okay. fixed angles both pegs. Occasionally I will use what we call a high compression screw. If I have a young 
you know, patient with good quality bone and a dorsal ulnar uh, fragment. I, I like to put these screws that have like a differential pitch effect. They compress one millimeter. I think it's a good idea, but they don't work in, in osteoporotic bone. They don't do anything in osteoporotic bone. So for the majority of my cases, mostly are spoof pegs. I will occasionally use threaded pegs. If I use a threaded peg, I do favor the ones that compress a little bit if, if I have to. Uh, the pink pegs uh, are the ones that have no compression, but it's dealer's choice. A lot of people like them, and if they want them, they're there. Okay, and and the goal of this isn't to get you know necessarily bicortical fixation, you know. So you can be you can be a little shorter on these if if you need. But you'd rather be shorter than longer. Is that is that is that right? Absolutely correct. You okay. don't want to have to go through a dorsal cortex, particularly with threaded screws, because now you will be offering your flexor tendon a sharp border to rupture against. Right. Very true. All right. So this is us. Um, so it's going to play that a little. Yep. So let me, I don't, I don't like the direction of that K wire. So let me take it out. I'm going to freehand a smaller K wire. Right. And I want it to go out the very tip of the side of that. Oh, got it. Now it's a, there's a cannulated drill, so I want to lose the track. It was difficult enough to get it. And then measure. Make sure that when you reinsert the K-wires in the track that you want. Yeah, I mean, just, we just want to be right in that, right in the corner of the radius. That's the goal um, of where that screw is going to be. So, so I guess, tricks. it's like you are saying, so if it doesn't necessarily match up, you can always use a polyaxial screw and freehand it. And just so you get in that corner, cause that's just gonna give you the most support. Yes. Okay, perfect. I know these are the, the polyaxial screws. They're, they're very hard material. They're cobalt chrome, so they can cut threads into titanium plates. And they're very strong. Then now you do your shaft. Do you always fill every hole up in the in the in the shaft? I'm a as hole filler. Cortical screws. I'm a hole filler. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and I, I I like my shaft screws to be slightly longer, maybe a, a millimeter longer than I measure. And I like my distal screws to be two millimeters shorter than I measure. So I'm never through the to the. Um, floor of the extensor tendons at the joint line. Okay. So we have here. Now we are repairing the transitional fiber zone, that thick periosteum, mm -hmm. repair it over the distal edge of the plate. Why not? And now we repair the brachiodialis side to side, and we're suturing okay. your muscle to the brachiodialis. So the reason to repair the brachiodialis is so you have somebody to attach the bronator back to. Ah, okay. You can always repair that muscle, especially if you release the brachioradialis from the radius, uh, from the proximal fragment, as, as you suture, oh, I'm sorry, as you suture the muscle, then then it has it has gig, and the 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 brachioradialis will, will will bow string and move towards the muscle, and not rip it out. Ah, okay. Like we're doing right now. And last but not least, I'm putting the FCR tendon right on its sheath. I'm repairing those fibers that attached it to the trapezium by simply using an absorbable suture. Yeah, and these are the ones that we, that when we were initially starting off doing our dissection, we cut those with our, you know, either a scissor or, or, or knife or whatever it may be, just in order to get us that excursion and be able to move the FCR so we can clearly visualize uh, the fracture. Yes. And we are now re reconstructing the support of the distal pole of the scaphoid that the, that the flexor carpi radialis is supposed to do. And we're done. Perfect. I think that was great. <laughs> I think that was a great. Um, so, you know, any, any, um, I know we, we, I guess we kind of really just went through most of them. Any other key tips that you would have as far as um, fixing? Uh, as far as the approach wise, and then as far as plating, you know, using um, any other plates. Actually, I have a I have a 
follow-up question. But any uh, first question I have is any other tips or tricks that you have as far as the approach is concerned? I think we we did a very very good, uh, good. coverage of the extended share approach. There are always nuances that 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 we learn um, many times when you have a really community articular fracture. You can be you have to be creative. I usually don't use K wires unless they're through the bushings in the plate. Uh, I usually only use fixed angle K wires to the plate, but occasionally I use a K wire to support the uh, punched in articular segment while I insert the the uh, pegs or screws and I remake, remove the K wire later. Um, yeah. It's 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 every case is different, and some of these high energy injuries are very challenging. Uh, so it, it's whatever you think, you know it, you're going to find a challenge. <laughs> One thing, <laughs> I like to put sure. my finger over the styloid uh, 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 process. That's why I release the first compartment. So I can push the radial styloid again and reduce it as I drill, put the screw into it. Um, that that yeah. I find to be a, a very good way of fixing the, the, the scaphoid fossa or the radial column. For that, I need to release the first compartment. That's why well, one of the reasons to release it is, is to facilitate reduction of the styloid fragment. And are there any cases where, you know, that you may use like a bridge plate or the little ulnar hook plate to, uh, you know, with your radius fracture, that little uh, extra attachment? Absolutely. The ulnar hook plate, we use it maybe 2% of the time when there's a, when, when there's a voter marginal fragment. And by a voter marginal fragment, I mean, a small um, volar lunate fragment that the fracture line is at the distal edge of the plate or, or perhaps a little, little proximal to it. So the plate doesn't have the opportunity to really support it in space. So for that, we need to use the hook plate just to simply neutral, neutralize the forces on it. And the bridge plate, I usually don't use it in, okay. in, in acute cases unless it's a, it's a polytraumatized patient that has many other things like pelvic fractures and um, you know, multiple, you know, life-threatening injuries, head injuries. And then there's, you know, spent 45 minutes trying to fix a radius, you slap a, a, a bridge plate on it and uh, the patient can thrash in the ICU without hurting himself with an external fixator. Remember the days of the external fixator, the confused patients were moving those pins around and the nurses had to run away from the fixator, it's crazy. And that really, the hook plays a much better, the bridge plays a much better way of managing those those cases. And also, when I do a really bad redo, somebody that was fixed and failed and was fixed again, and I failed again, uh, there is a moment that you need the bridge plate. And for those volar marginal fragments that have been reabsorbed, that two or three months down the line, the, the wrist is dislocated palmarly, the volar marginal fragment has disappeared, and now you have to bone graft and reconstruct. Uh, the the bridge plate comes in very handy because you can keep them like neutralized, the, elevate the, the the wrist away from the radius just slightly for four months, and you wait for the bone graft to heal, and you take it out, and, and they're stable afterwards. Uh, okay, good. Well, uh, Doctor Orbe, I think this has been great. I think we touched on a lot of different things. We touched on a good amount of the history of volar plating and kind of how it's evolved over time. We took a look at a couple different types of plates, H plate, the pie plate, and kind of now we touched about what we have today and what we're using, to, we're using today. Um, we touched over the uh, exposure. We talked about the approach in depth, and I hope anybody listening and can and watching the video now, you know, you're educated of how to do this approach a little bit better. Uh, we talked about the technique as far as, you know, reduction in plate application. Uh, is there anything else that you think that, you know, people listening to this podcast should um, get or at least know about you know fixing these uh, these these distal radius fractures at least with, especially with our volar lock plating. I Wendell, I, th I think we've done such a thorough job. <laughs> I think we're on our way to victory. <laughs> I think we have done it. Oh, Doctor Orbe, again, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Again, I really enjoyed speaking with you and having you on and. Uh, you're welcome back anytime if you want to come back on again. But again, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Wendell, I enjoyed it very much. I really thank you for, for this, this opportunity to, to share my ideas. Uh, so uh, if, if you want to 
do it again, I'm, I'm game. Now, again, I hope you all enjoyed this episode with Dr. Orbe. We talked about a lot. We went over a lot of material. We talked about the anatomy. We talked about the approach. We talked about operative pearls on how to fix these. So without further ado, please hit the subscribe button. Please tell one friend about this. And please just uh, just share it. That would be a huge bonus for us if you share it on your social media page like Facebook. Remember the, the share button. If you could hit that button, that would be super helpful. And until next time.